Hello everyone, welcome to episode 717 of Cold Wave Soundcheck. I'm Aaron Pollock. It is time. This season we've been chatting with the performers of the Cold Wave 7 Festival, which kicks off this Wednesday the 12th in New York City, with Ruby, AccuCrack, and more performing at Mercury Lounge. Thursday and Friday shows are at Irving Plaza, and Saturday's show is at Gramercy Theatre. Next week, Cold Waves heads to Chicago, the 20th through the 23rd, and finishes in Los Angeles, the 26th through 29th. Head to coldwaves.net for the full lineup and ticket links. This week, we welcome back Greg Puchado. Performing in all three cities, this is the Black Queen. I want to start on the morning of December 30th. Oh, yeah, okay. Because oh. I was at the show the night of the 29th, and that was just... Uh, Man. It was so exhausting. Like, that, you could see in the audience, it just everyone put everything they had into that, and you guys on stage were putting everything you had into that. What did you feel the next day? Were you sort of sad? Were you relieved? Well, if you want to be completely honest, because what's the point not being... Like, I when I woke up, I had like a, a gazillion text messages on my phone and a lot of them were videos of uh, things from my hotel room from like five or six in the morning that I have no recollection of whatsoever. <laughs> so, I mean, I had a bunch of people 
up to my room and I guess I told everybody to like just drink all the mini bar and that it would be okay. And we were already wrecked, I guess, because it's New York. Um, and last call is, you know, four or five a.m. So I, whatever time we were, m- me and a bunch of people were in my room, it was it was uh, morning and it was out of control. And I don't remember any of those videos. So I was like, damn, we must have gone pretty hard, you know, because I have a vague recollection of being at the bar afterwards. And then like people were sending me pictures, and I had like a, I had a like a, I think I had like a wig on or something, and somebody's earrings that weren't mine were like <laughs> all kinds like a big hoop earring at one point. I was like, god damn, I must have really gone for it but uh it the show itself was like a a, kind of a blur that i was so focused on it being on being good um leading up to it like the month leading up to it i was really you know when it when the first one sold out and then it's like okay we're gonna book a second one then the second one sold out and it's okay we're gonna book a third one then it's you know obviously that's that's amazing but it's a lot of um it's a lot of physical pressure for me because singing is not like playing drums or guitar where like if you break your string, you can, you know, grab the other guitar and they and then the, your strings get changed on the one you just broke and that kind of thing. Like if I screw my voice up and I go too hard like the first night, the second night you're just piling on top of that and then by the third night you're sounding like shit and the third night is your final show that you're ever going to play with this band. And then, you know, we know the set list going into it, so I know that the song dissociation is the final song that we're going to play on the last night. And that song is all singing. And that's, you know, the thing that takes the biggest beating when you're, when you're screaming your head off the thing that is like, yeah, I'm not into this is your singing voice. So I was just already like, man, like, how do I, how do I get through? Not just the, um, the, the emotional weight of this, but the physical pressure of it and also manage to be present and enjoy it and you know the flip side of trying to be present is the more that you try to be present you're you end up not being present so and or you end up not performing well or or feeling like you were connected to the room or connected to your bandmates or the songs because you're thinking on stage if you're thinking about being present you're not present so going into this you know my mind is just all over the place i've been you know warming up for a week i've been you know running an insane amount of distance to make sure that i'm you know, my, my, my cardio is where it needs to be to, to play the shows. And I was just like obsessed with, with the shows and, and being good. And, uh, so, I mean, I haven't watched any video from them. I haven't, I haven't heard anything from it, but I, I do remember that they were, f- were fun, I guess, you know, like the first show I remember, like maybe like the beginning opening couple of songs. And then the second show, I feel like I have a recollection of, a uh, of, of Prancer. And then the final show, I remember the very last song and um, I remember the first song they played an instrumental song that was off of the first EP and I was waiting I was standing backstage and I had a moment where I like welled up and like kind of like the severity of everything like really hit me not just the shows but the entire 17 years and 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 all the personal struggles that had gone on behind the scenes and uh and just the struggles that to always make the band happen i mean we really really we really drove that fucker you know and no matter what was happening behind the scenes in our personal lives we set that aside so that we could continue to uh to fight the battle so to speak and when that happens you just accumulate like a lot of uh not just trauma but just heavy weight and it all just kind of slammed into me for a second right before we went on stage and i like had a moment where i was like whoa i'm about to like you know, go into a, I'm about to turn into some, to the waterworks here. And then I just had to like, you know, look to the side and, uh, you know, think about, uh, 
Transformers or something, whatever, you know, ice cream. I don't know. You just like shake it off real quick. And you're like, I'm not going to go on stage fucking bawling because you can't you can't sing or scream while you're, when you're crying. But but uh, yeah, the next day I was just like, man, like, OK, it actually felt really good. It felt like a relief. Uh, the whole uh, I'm sorry, I'm rambling, but this is what podcasts are for. Like the uh, the whole year and a half was what sucked honestly like it was really heavy it was really hard to do the album was really depressing um the circumstances were were obviously different than any other album we ever made and the lyrical content the emotional content of the record was really really depressing so having to go straight from that into the tour cycle where it's still really on your mind the whole time and you're now thrust into this situation where you're not only kind of emotionally emotionally um shaken up by the album but you're also the weight of the band ending changes the way every single show feels and i've said this before like when you play a show in you know amsterdam or prague or wherever it is birmingham alabama that show is the last time that you're playing there so like those people that go to the show they're not treating you with the same energy that they usually come with they're treating you with this energy of like the kind of like this goodbye thing and it's like being part of your own funeral procession and i'm a really emotional person so it was like really tough like i had a hard time with it and uh i was going through a lot of other stuff behind the scenes too that had nothing to do with the band and it was really difficult for me to um to 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 deal with everything and then we kept having all these problems you know we had we were in this massive we were in this bus accident in europe which was you know really shook us all up and then uh the very next tour that we did was with Soundgarden and that seemed like a kind of like a silver lining like okay like the bus accident was awful but now we're going to go on tour with Soundgarden and then on that tour Chris Cornell killed himself so it was just like oh my fucking god dude like can we how about we just end right now like do we have to like book a final show can we just like not do this anymore and I think that's we all got to that point right after the Soundgarden thing and uh kind of like anted up and got back on the horse and so by the time it was like we were close to ending every flight that we took things like that if there was like a little turbulence we'd be like shit like or is the plane going to crash like what's gonna are they not gonna let us the universe isn't gonna let us get to the finish line here can we just cross it already so uh, the, the prevailing emotion to to wrap this up is on the day after the last show was, was honestly relief like it felt like a big weight was was off of me and and this big black hole that you couldn't see the other side of you were you went through it and now we're on the other side and i woke up and i felt good and i went and had breakfast at a diner and i got in a rental car and drove out of New York and uh, and honestly like the very next night just went and had dinner with uh, some of the dudes in Dillinger in, uh, in New Jersey and then flew home the next day. With Fever Daydream, that, that was a really long process as you found the right band members and you were trying to find your sound Yep. and there were no expectations. So now for Infinite Games, you know better who you are and and what your roles are in the band we do and the turnaround time is is much faster so does that make this album easier to make or is it harder because you know of of expectations or having less time to to work through all the songs well you nailed it i mean we didn't ha- we didn't have less time because we're not on a clock you know like we could have taken a year and a half if we wanted to we didn't uh it wasn't like we announced a release date before we were done or anything. So we could have taken as long as we wanted, but, um, but you really nailed it. Like it is, it's easier and harder. It's easier because you already have, as I've said, you know, before a language, you've learned how to speak to one another. You've learned what your strengths and weaknesses are and, um, relative to one another. And you, um, 
you've gotten all that out of the way and that's that's kind of the process of making the first record but it's in some ways it was more difficult because there is pressure now and there and you are aware that you can't make fever daydream part two and and that uh you have to push yourself and you have to push each other and you have to be willing to fight with each other and so like kind of the romance of being like oh my god we discovered a a winning formula between these three ingredients that uh seems to bear fruit that that is over and now you're in the trenches with one another and you might fight and you might snip at each other and you might you, you know not like something someone's doing and have to push them out of their comfort zone which pushes your relationship out of its comfort zone so those are kind of the uh the second album album things and for me obviously the pressure was really great because th- this is the first album i've ever done publicly where it wasn't uh, that didn't have the Dillinger escape plan as like the the primary um, storyline, you know, the, as or, or safety net or whatever, however you want to view it. So for me, I was like, okay, there's going to be a lot of eyes on me, fairly or not, for uh, for this record. And, you know, I had to get out of my own head as best as I could for that. But I mean, we're all pretty viciously perfectionistic, myself almost annoyingly so. So um, to, the, to, to the point of probably it being a form of self-abuse. So it was... Uh, it was difficult, but we, we got through it.
still at least three weeks away something like that yeah and every single one of your packages is sold out because that's sold out the cd sold out everything except there's a european version and an australian version which they're still out there yeah there's not a lot we could we could pull them i mean if i want to have anything to sell at the actual shows in australia and the uk i have to i have to cut them soon because there's not a whole lot left and like the only option at that point would be to repress them and i'm trying not to when I talked to Wes from Cold Cave, he, he liked to talk about how he would purposely only press a certain amount because he didn't want things piling up in his house. Do you have a similar mindset or did you sort of underestimate how rabid the fan base is? Um, well, the piling up in your house thing, I will never have that happen again because the first record, I thought it would be a good idea for us to mail everything ourselves. And uh, that. And look, I'm glad that we did because it, again, it like tied me to the audience and it tied me to the band in a way that, you know, I really had my hands in every single aspect of that release. And I will will never do that again. It it broke me, man. It like broke me down. When you see how many records, a thousand or fifteen hundred double vinyl is when they show up to your place in a in a semi and they tell you that there's like two literal tons of records outside and they it, you're like oh my god like it's so many it's so much more when you see it at once than you realize and then you have you're just sitting there and you're looking at it all and you're like fuck you know like you don't you don't know what to do so i will i'll never do that again so, but no but my reasons for or our reasons for for limiting them is just mainly because i i i enjoy it like i enjoy the um you know what the main the first thing is that it's a reaction against the way the industry runs like i really don't like the quantification of art like i i dislike it i dislike the amount of people that i hear talking about it and the only way to take control of that is to take control of it the only way because everyone operates on these things where they're you know especially i've talked about this before that when you talk to people in the industry which i try to avoid as often as possible they all they talk about is numbers. They just are like, well, how many followers do you have? Or how many social media followers? Or how many albums have you sold? Or how many did, what was your last first week? And it's just like, it really means nothing because if you if you do pay attention to it, you know, there's some little band from Warped Tour that has, you know, four million followers and then Nine Inch Nails has like a couple hundred thousand, you know, if we're talking on Instagram or something like that. And you're like, well, that band's nowhere near as big as Nine Inch Nails. It's all farce. It's a farce. And there's all the, it's like saying that someone had a number one record it's like saying that Alien Ant Farm had a number one record in you know 2002, and you know you you're like oh well that if you didn't know anything and you were from another planet, you would land here and you would look at their numbers and you'd be like oh that band must be massive and it's like well no they're not like it's it's not it's not an accurate representation of anything. It's the only reason all these industry people go to those numbers is because they're only they've long since forgotten how to listen and they they don't understand artist fan relationships at all and they don't understand art for the most part at all anymore and so the only thing they can understand is numbers and so the only way they can measure something is by looking at the numbers so the best way to say fuck you to them is to take that measurement away from them and that was my initial reaction because i'm I'm very you know i don't like it doesn't take much for me to create like something to say fuck you about 
And if I have the ability to to go down that road, I will. So when it was time to, you know, when we were saying let's self-release our record, you know, everyone, it, their, their go-to is just to make infinite quantities of things. Well, you're just going to put it up. We'll put it up and we'll see how many people are buying it. And then we're going to make as many people want it. That's And that's fucking ridiculous. No, it's yours. Decide how many you want beforehand. Take a stand and say, hey, no, this is how many we sold so that when someone says, Hey, how many did you sell? You can say we sold 1500 of them because we only made 1500 of them. Like, and they're like, well, how come you could have sold 3000 of them? It's like, dude, you're missing. It's just like, misses the point. And then the next thing that goes, well, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. It's like, dude, I, don't you think I'm aware of all this? Like, it has nothing to do with any of that for me. It has to do with doing something special that has meaning. It isn't just about like sell the most stuff to the most people. Like, when I find when I have something that's limited personally, I find I feel it. I I I feel more. I, I, it's more special to me than uh, than having something that there's a gazillion quantities of that's being sold next to the toilet paper aisle at Target or something, you know. But I've noticed it's it's not 250 copies or 500. It's it's 233 or 466. Are there are there meanings behind these numbers? Originally, the three came from the triangle, and there's you know there's three people. In the band, yeah, and this all came from, um, you know, Steve and I, like back when the band was first starting. Where, um, man, I've talked about this a bunch too, but we're taking a bunch of, we were just really far into psychedelics at the time, and uh, there's a lot of like weird numerology stuff in, in the, especially like the, kind of the early stuff that uh, no one's even, some of the stuff no one's even picked up on, that we were just like way into the rabbit hole of insanity at that time, and uh, so it's just kind of carried on. As like a, it's just another way to honestly at this point like be difficult <laughs> and say say fuck you to convention, which I don't. You really don't ever have to twist my arm to do. By the way, if you just tell me, hey, this is something that no one's doing and it's gonna kind of deliberately be a pain in the ass, I'm gonna be like, yeah, we got to do that. I don't know if it's still on your webpage, but there there was a. 369 page with three question marks that wanted a password. Yes. And I remember everyone was trying to figure that out. Did anyone ever figure that out? No one ever figured it out, but there is something there if someone were to get the password, which is crackable. I, I, I think that people would, there's people that probably know what it is. It's a fold. There's a folder. If you get to it, there's a folder and there's a folder with something in it and, or, or a lot of something in it. And that folder, if someone ever got the password, they would just get a, they would get access to it, but there's I don't, no one's ever going to find it, which is which is even more fun because you know you would say to yourself, well, we got to give people clues, and now it's like, kind of like now we don't. It doesn't really even matter if anyone ever finds it. There's been no color in your palette to date. You know, right. uh, on your web page and your Instagram and and the album artwork, everything was black and white. And then when you released the the different color variations for the new album, you you wrote something to Jesse about something about swearing that he would never use color. Tell me a little more about that. I feel like, you know, monochrome, I'm more of a fan of as far as photography goes. That's kind of uh, where where my tastes lean anyway. And, you know, one of the things that Jesse and I initially bonded over to begin with was kind of our uh, obvious mutual um, preference for, for black and white. W- with the first record, it felt correct. Like the first record to me, it just, it just, we were in a really kind of a bleak place during the creation of a lot of that record and it felt it just felt correct like when you listen to a record it has a a, a color to it and that and that one didn't like it felt black and white and the the more i you know the more i got into kind of becoming more um into photography 
the more I was just gravitating towards black and white. And then Jesse was, you know, into black and white. And it just made sense, like the marriage of his aesthetic and ours and the kind of photography we were drawn to and the mood that we were in and the way the album sounded to us, it all felt black and white. And um, this record did not feel black and white to to us. And I remember, you know, obviously Jesse's basically like a almost a fourth member. And he, when you know, we were talking one day, he was just like, well, let me know, you know, let me know when I can start hearing some stuff. And I said, Hey man, just to let you know, like, uh, we can't, we can't use black and white for this record. And he was like, well, it looks like you're gonna have to find someone else. And I was like, fuck off. You know, damn well, we're not, we're not getting someone else. So you're going to have to, you know, figure this out, do some color. And Jesse's colorblind. So he's really resistant to, um, to using color. And I was like, Hey man, that's even more reason why you should. And, uh, you, you know, I've taken giant artistic risks like with, you know, Miss Machine, was a big risk. Um, even you know, Fever Daydream was a, was a was a big risk. And I, you know, kind of told Jesse, if you don't do something that's not black and white, you're going to be trapped by it. You're going to be trapped by it forever. And even if you don't do color ever again, just showing yourself that you can puts you in ownership of, you know, of your of your work. And he kind of was just like, you know, fuck off. And uh, you know, maybe like two weeks go by. And then at like four in the morning, I just started getting text messages with like nine, 10, 11 different, you know, crazy color cover artwork uh, things. And I just typed back like, ha ha, like cackling, laughing, you know. And uh, he was like, am I on the right track? Is this awesome? And I was like, Dude, this is sick. Like, I'm, I knew, you know, he's like, it feels good. It feels right. Like when I listen to the album, this feels like the album. And I was like, yeah, you know, so we we got on the same page. And uh, like I said, if he never does it again, that'll that makes it even more of an anomaly but i mean i do we all do still prefer monochrome aesthetically but uh this record feels more like you know the first record felt like nighttime to me and this feels like there's a little bit of evening and a little bit of dawn in there and uh everything doesn't feel as stark it feels like there's more more detail more nuance and the, the i'm in a happier place i mean not that the record's like uh, like a smurf song or something but like I, I, i'm in a better place and and uh i feel i don't feel morose right now so i'm I'm, I'm digging the color stuff. You're putting this out under a new label called Federal Prisoner. Yes. What are, do you have any specific plans for it, or is this Absolutely. just to sort of lay down the groundwork for opportunities in the future? But yeah, we have a lot of plans for it. And, and the reason for it mainly, you know, and it's, it's obviously more to the other guy's credit than me. Um, I had the name for a long time, and uh, I usually have names really far in advance. Like I had... I had dissociation back when when um, one of us is a killer came out. I had Fever Daydream when one of us is a killer came out. I had Infinite Games when Fever Daydream came out. So I've had I've had Federal Prisoners since the same time as Fever Daydream, but I didn't know what it, what it was going to be. I just I, I just related to the combination of words, and uh, I thought it was going to be like some type of noise solo project. And then when we were talking about releasing the second record, the idea came up of well, instead of it just being instead of us just releasing a record again, like why we've already got the infrastructure. We pretty much had to create a label it, it, infrastructurally without calling it that. We had to, when we did everything ourselves the first time, it's not that we cut any corners. You know, we had distribution and we had to find, you know, all the, we had all these pieces in place so that, you know, there's, the, the album's available and I, you know, we had to make relationships with, you know, distributors and pressing plants and all these things. So we're like, once we've done that, what happens if one day we want to release something else? And to me, I've never led anyone down a dead end road, and and I really don't want to do that to 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 my audience at all. Like it makes me feel horrible. To, and and 
So uh, I was like, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't, well, there's nothing I can imagine right now. And then suddenly it was like, the more I sat with it, the more I was like, oh, wait a second. And, you know, randomly a friend of mine whose music I really like would be like, hey, do you know anyone that would want to put out this 12 inch? And I'm thinking to myself, no, but I would. And then I'm, it would seem like all these signs were pointing towards doing it. And then Josh was like, you know, I'd put out a telephone television record on there. And then I was like, shit, man, like I probably would do like a noise record or something. And then Steve's like, well, I would do probably some kind of ambient thing. And then it just turned into like a bunch of our friends starting to talk to us about this kind of stuff. And, and, you know, there's a lot of other things you can release besides music, like books and, and, and that kind of stuff. So it just became like, shit, man, there's a lot we could do with a, a moniker that wouldn't just be the black queen. And, uh, you know, it kind of, it's kind of, they have to build it. If you build it, they will come thing. Like we, the second we announced it, because I was I was still little iffy about it up until like the night before, and it was Jesse that really pushed me over the edge. Like Jesse was like, "Hey man, like there's a lot of stuff collectively that we all want to release that we all have to do, and like we have this amazing opportunity to own all of it and never have to give anyone any rights, any percentages. Like we are, you already built the infrastructure. We're all so on board with kind of like the vision for this." And, you know, a lot of that to me involves like a opposite of marketing and the opposite of branding. Like I just want it to be like this thing silently, kind of like our mailing list and everything else we do. I want it to be like this silent secret thing that functions in the background that isn't being thrust in your face and we're not asking people to pay attention to. And, you know, eventually one day it'll be like a federal prisoner, you know, catalog number 150 and we'll be like, shit, how'd that happen? And, and like I said, we're not going, we're not trying to go out and sign the next offspring or something. Like I don't even care about signing other people's bands. Like I just want it to be a thing that it's a pride thing. It's about pride in your own ownership and, and being able to uh, facilitate your vision without needing someone else to justify it by spending their money on it. Because most of the people that are spending money are not people that you should ever trust your art with. So yeah, once we, you know, once we announced it, it all made sense to me. I saw it and I was like, right, 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 right. And like suddenly all these things that had been like, we had been talking about behind the scenes. It was like, yeah, we can do all this now. It's totally, now we're free. We're totally free from ever needing to go to someone and being like, hey, would you, would you like to hear the thing I'm working on in exchange for some of your money? So like, it's like awful. Like I said, those people aren't people that you even want to work with. So this is uh, just a way to keep not having to work with them. You've already mentioned that you're thinking about maybe doing more U.S. shows next year, but so far you've been very selective about the shows that you played in the US and yeah. and after you know 3 weeks from now four of them will be with Cold Wave. So what makes Cold Wave's a good fit for you guys? Well, I mean there I a lot of the you know our friends in in real life and a lot of the the people that we associate with are you know from you know the electronic scene or the industrial scene or the noise scene or the experimental scene or the ambient. So we've kind of all run in that circle anyway and and uh a lot of my you know friends or you know promoter friends or places that we hang out are all are kind of in that realm so uh you know when when jason reached out originally it was just like a no-brainer like for the, the very first the very first one um i was happy you know to to do it and you know my obviously was again like just like releasing the record i was it was i was a little worried i was like shit I, we're gonna be you know possibly the lightest thing on on the lineup um and which is a really unusual position for me to be in but i i do think that our we come it's more aggressive live when you see it than it is on on record so it, it wasn't as much of a contrast as i maybe was worried about but uh you know jason took a big gamble on us because we agreed to do cold waves i think before we had even 
we, we, I don't think we'd even played our first show yet when we had already agreed to do Cold Waves. So the fact that he took a gamble on us really early on, um, it, it, it was nice to, to do it again this time. It just felt, it just felt correct. You know, it felt correct to be like, Hey, you know, we could go book headlining shows in those cities, but we would love to, uh, work to return the favor or work together again. However you want to, it, it was just felt right the first time. So we're, we're doing it again. But as far as other shows go, we don't have anything booked. Um, not because we don't want to mainly just because we're, you know, part of the, uh, the, the thing about doing this all yourself is that you're fucking swamped at all times. So we're just been like really, really, really swamped and trying to focus on the things that we do have booked ahead of us. But, uh, obviously we don't not want to play Atlanta and we don't not want to play Austin, Texas. And we don't, you know, we don't not want to play San Francisco and Seattle. We, we're going to get to it. It's just going to be, um, you know, sometime in 2019.
On this episode, you heard the still point of my turning world, the Hex remix of Secret Scream, and Apocalypse Morning. Hex's Secret Scream remix can be found on the Cold Wave 7 compilation, available at the upcoming shows. Our opening music is Madmaker by Accumination. Our closing music is Messiah by Splinter Group. Our closing segment each week is dedicated to the inspiration for Cold Waves, Fallen Chicago musician, and soundman Jamie Duffy. For our final story this season, I wanted to share my memories of Jamie. This was 1996. This was my second concert ever. And it was Sister Machine Gun and Chem Lab at Irving Plaza. This was the day after my 16th birthday. And I was at the merch area. And Lisa Randall, I was telling her all the bands that I was into. I told her that I really liked Acumen. And she said to me, oh, Jamie Duffy is doing sound for our tour. Let me go get him. And this dude comes up and he's got like the new rock boots and the nose ring. He just looked like a rock star to me. He was like, yo, Aaron, I heard you like our band. And I was like, yeah, man. He was like, cool. That's really cool. They had a card out promoting Acumen was touring with Cubanate and he signed the card for me. And then later on, Jared from ChemLab signed that card also. I still have that card too. And then every time I saw him at a show after that, I would always go and say hi. And he would be like, hey, man, I like our New York shows because, you know, we know you're going to be here. And sometimes I even felt like I was bothering them. I would go to a show and I would sit at the bar and I'd be like, I'm not going to bug them. I'm not going to bug them. And Jamie would go up to me and he'd be like, dude, did you not see us standing over there? Why don't you come say hi? You know, come have a beer with us. Come backstage and hang out with us. It just made the night so much better because I was I didn't just see the band. I got to like hang out with this band. When people say like don't meet people that you look up to or your heroes or whatever, like he was one of my heroes, and I just think those people just have shitty heroes because he was such a cool dude. I miss him.